0: Hi, this is Justin Slaas of High Def Disc News. Just recently I was fortunate enough to interview Bill Croyer, director of the 1992 film Ferngully and the folks at Shout Factory are going to be releasing a 30th anniversary edition Blu-ray on August 23rd which you should definitely pick up. Now without further ado here is the interview. I'm joined by Bill Croyer, director of Fern Girlie, The Last Rainforest from 1992. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you here today.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be
0: here. Now, I know a bit about your work in animation, and I find this fact to be immensely important, so we'll start with it. In 1998, you did an animated short film called Technological Threat that blended hand-drawn 2D animation and 3D CG animation, which was nominated for an Academy Award. First off, in hindsight, I think you probably should have won that award, in my own personal opinion. But how did it feel, being part of the change where technology was becoming more a part of the animation that would later become the whole CG animation craze of the mid-90s? Well, you
1: know, I I was kind of there at the birth, you know, when when I did Tron. That was really the first big-screen attempt to bring computer
0: animation into, you know, into the big screen. Right. And I got got hooked on it, because it was so exciting,
1: you know, it was brand new, and... uh, So after Disney, people like me and John Lasseter who wanted to do computer stuff were basically kicked out of Disney. So I I, uh, went off and did other things in the computer industry. But then I I got frustrated because I didn't think that... Well, computers definitely could not do subtle character animation like you could do by hand. So that's why I invented my process where I could combine the two. So I didn't have to... I didn't have to compromise. I could do full character acting by hand and I could do really difficult, complicated, and interesting computer imagery with the computer. And that was my basic idea. And I set up a sole company to do it. And that attracted a lot of talent. You know, we had really wonderful people come and work for us. And then when the guys came to America to do Frank Valley, they came from Australia, you know, they had a big hit with Crackville MD, and they wanted to make this movie and they discovered to their shock that there weren't a lot of animation feature units in Hollywood. It was really Disney and that was it. Right. So, um, that's how they came to us they came to us because we were doing work for disney and we had a lot of disney people at our company
0: and we were doing disney quality you had a lot of talent as you said with that i didn't even have this in your question but you brought it up is it true that mel blank actually did the voice on that one no we didn't have mel blank why does imdb have that that's a bit of a weird one if you go check imdb you might want to get that fixed that short film though what what
1: is What does it say? He did the
0: voice up? What project? Uh, just every voice says so Mel Blank, Bugs Bunny himself. <laughs> Isn't that weird? What a maroon. Somebody I guess. Somebody's pranking
1: my page. I think, pranked, I page. I think so.
0: To I hate to break that to you in an That's interview. <laughs> that is hilarious, and I, I I think I just got a laugh out of it myself, and I'm just trying to hold it back here. But that short film featured a dystopian. You hey, Mel Blanc, and you
1: got Robin Williams.
0: Yeah, really. Uh, I'm coming to that point here in a minute. That short film, though, it featured a dystopian society where uh, the wolves, in the case of relatable to the audience, I guess, as humans, were being replaced by these office workplace robots. I think Ferngully has a bit of that same type of world where things have changed immensely and the rainforest is disappearing, and the only remaining humans, I guess, are uh, destroying it, pretty much. Did you think about that going into making the short? You, you mentioned a bit of that, you know, that they came to you based on that short.
1: It wasn't just the short, of course. It was all the other things we were doing that had, like, Christmas vacation. It really we had a really great thing where we had this dimensionality of CG working with the humor and the acting of two D character drawings.
0: So right. That
1: was really what happened with it. They they were attracted
0: by that. For those who you don't know, know what you were referring to there, that was the intro for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. You did that intro for the animation on that and it's just so memorable. I noticed you were a part of that. It's just incredible.
1: We had a lot of fun doing those titles because in know titles you get a lot of freedom. They come to you and you know, they they hire you, and what's nice about titles is there's a, the movie's coming out, right? There's a release date. Right. So they can't pick at you very much because you got to get it done. So they give you, you know, like, whatever, 10, 12 weeks, and they and you just run with it, and you show them stuff, and they go, yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and so we were kind of used to having that kind of creative freedom when we went into Fern Gully. You know, we, we were used to having very big clients like Disney and Warner Brothers trust us completely, you know? Right. And we kind of expected that from the Australian guys. And um, it took a little while to, to win them over, but we eventually did.
0: One last one here about that short. I know you're, you're thinking, oh, you love that short. I do love that short, though. And the credits to that, you thank Brad Bird. How did you guys meet? I've actually met Brad. He's a super cool guy. And he we went on to be you know, pretty big in animation and with uh, The Iron Giant and then Pixar. How did you guys meet?
1: I into Disney Studios with blind luck. I was an untrained young animator trying to be into Disney and I walked in literally the week but they were opening up the training program to all these young CalArts guys. And they were right. looking for young talent after 40 years. They didn't have any young talent. I just happened to blend in with those guys so I was Brad's <laughs> roommate. It was me and John Oscar wow. and Henry Selleck. You know, we were the, we were roommates Wow. as trainees and we've been, the four of us have been like close friends for the last, like, 40 years, you know, um, because we started out literally together, learning all about Disney animation together, shoulder to shoulder, working under Eric Larson, one of the nine old men, i I got to tell you, I'm so
0: blessed. Those are legends, and you are as well. Uh, There's an incredible amount of people that really changed that industry, obviously. You used them in the very same style of animation that you used on that short. Uh, The hand-drawn and 2D blend on Ferngully, The Last Rainforest, which I think looks marvelous. This was really cutting edge for its time and competed with the major animated studio Disney. Uh, Did you find that intimidating to try to compete with the stuff they had going at that point with CG and 3D? You know, it's the ultimate David and Goliath. You can't even call it competing. You know,
1: we were like a fleet. We were in a brewery mm-hmm. in Van Nuys. That's where we made the movie. We made it the, in the, in the Stroh's Brewery. That day Stroh's had just moved out. And we moved into the brewery. They still had the beer taps. And we set up our dashes and everything and started making Fern Valley, And it was crazy. We were building the studio, moving furniture, and as we made the movie, I mean, that's one of the most remarkable things about Fern Valley, I think, is that we made that movie in two years. Right. Well, we built the studio to make the
0: movie. You started out with just a staff of 13 starting out, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. We had to get a facility and hire all these people and form all
0: the units. It was David and Goliath. And just, we I, I really, you did a great job, though, I honestly think. There's a reason I'll ask about that and I'll elaborate into further question. But moving on, this was the uh, late, great Robin Williams' first time doing an animated film. In fact, uh, that very same year, he would do another memorable animated film voice, but more on that in a bit. It said that Robin actually recorded around 10 hours of dialogue of just him riffing and doing his comedic improv skills. Uh, and Now that did inspire you to actually expand the character's uh, screen time. Can you elaborate a bit on that, Bill? And looking back on it... Do you miss any particular lines? I know you talked about it in the audio uh, commentary, which is featured on this Blu-ray release, but are there any particular that you didn't really want to mention on there or anything? That, I mean, 10 hours? Is that really how much he recorded? <laughs> no, there's about... Yeah, there's
1: about 10 hours. You know, because in a typical animated you know, movie, you know, you're going to have recording sessions. We I think we did three sessions with them. You know, the big one was up at Skywalker Ranch. I think that was... A, I think we did a... Uh, at least one full day, maybe a day and a half up at Skywalker. And then we had a big call back at of those, you know, about six months later when he came in and did you pick up lines? The thing with Robin is, you know, he, as you know, he gets the scene right away and he nails it right away and then he starts trying other things to improve the scene and he's improvising and every improvisation is brilliant. So, you get into that problem where, whoa, this is so hilarious, what am I going to choose? But on the other hand, you know, we had a pretty defined story structure and, You realize Batty Coda is really the center of the movie in a lot of ways.
0: He really is. He symbolizes the entire story.
1: You know, he is nature harmed by humans. And he's the personality of that situation. And so it wasn't the kind of thing where you could let that character go here and there. You know, you had to keep him directly in line with the story and the track of the story. You know, and to answer your question, I I can't specifically remember any lines. I just watched some of those tapes a couple weeks ago. And they're
0: all hilarious. Do you think that ever release those, or you would? Well, I would like to I'd
1: like to do that. I, I, I think there is a little bit of a, a thing about Robin's estate. They're pretty, they're pretty protective of right. anything that he's done. Understanding. Again, I, I believe that our Scott Zachary is talking to them, and maybe some time we'll be able to do it. I, I think, it, in a way, I almost think it's like it's, like, it's, it's a piece of
0: history Right. To see Robin at work seen
1: footage never before
0: no one's seen any of this no one's ever seen it right and it's the guy he's such a wonderful person you know and so brilliant he was one of a kind he truly was he was one of a kind speaking of robin going back to that very same year in 1992 robin was doing uh that first voice for you all on that gig but he was also offered the disney adaptation of aladdin and another memorable role It said that Katzenberg, the head of Disney, was trying to get him to leave the film, yet Robin refused to listen to them. What was that like? And, you know, was that true?
1: We never heard that at the time. We never heard that. I mean, that might have happened between Robin and and Disney, but Robin never ever said anything about that. Robin was totally dedicated to Fern Gully. From the very beginning, when he heard about the project we met him in a hotel room in Marin County. We met him at the courtyard by Marriott right there by the Larkspur Ferry. Don't forget that meeting. You know, we went in there we met him we told him what, what the meaning of the movie was and what it was all about. And and he just instantly got it. And he just said, I'm in and this is it. I'm in. And he, uh, you know, he donated all of his proceeds to Sting's Rainforest Fund. So, um, Robin was totally committed to Ferngo as the start. He really, really loved the project. He
0: would never have abandoned it. Yeah, it really seems that he believed in this film and the message behind it and everything. So even if that was true, I think that he definitely stuck by what this stood for and was proud of it. And what he contributed was amazing and it was, you know, Pretty much, Batty was the glue that pretty much holds this film together throughout your right in that. Excellent point that I, myself, forgot to really point out and I'm glad that you did. Now, this film has received a new 4K scan from the folks at Shaw Factory, which looks superb here on this 30th anniversary edition on Blu-ray. You've even filmed a new introduction to the movie, which is great, because I love to see a director involved with anything in regards to home video releases. So I have a unique question in regards to home video and movies here for you. Be honest here: Are you a fan of collecting movies physically on Blu-ray or DVD?
1: I, I've been in the Academy for 30 years, right? So I've been getting Blu-rays and DVDs sent to me for like 30 years.
0: Stranger is <laughs> so, right, correct? So
1: I had like hundreds of them,
0: you know. Right. But I started collecting
1: my own Blu-rays. My own. I have my own special drawer of Blu-rays that I keep. In, in one special place. And I keep, and I just have, like, my favorite classics, you know, right. like, you know, The Apartment, The Sound Music, and all these ones.
0: Great choices. You know, every
1: time they go out with a new one that's really high-end Blu-ray,
0: I love getting it, you know, because exactly. I have a big 4K TV, and, um, yeah, I tell you, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's, um, it's nice to have your own
1: thing, you know, even in this age of streaming, it's still really a pleasure to have those movies that are special to you you know to have them right there even at any time especially if the extras are good you know I love them, really them love
0: myself them. are you a fan of bonus materials you seem to like it the I action. am yes I am I'm pretty
1: amazed at what
0: It seemed like you had a lot of fun doing the introduction and then going back to that audio commentary. It seems like you had fun doing the bonus materials and so it doesn't surprise me that you are a fan of bonus and extras and all that. So uh, you still go to the theater when you can? Well, COVID has definitely put a limit on that. Right, I know. I go to the theater occasionally for big movies. Right. Of course, I saw Top Gun. You know, but I haven't gone to the
1: theater that much. Some of that's personal thing. We get we we have some friends who have, have some illnesses, and we have to be really careful with right. COVID in our house. So we've been a little more careful than some people. Uh, but it's oh, that's the only reason. I mean, I've always been a huge fan of the theater. You know, but I have to admit, you know, now that Blu-rays are coming out and you're getting you know, a lot of theaters have 2K projection. Now you, know, you got 4K at home. And, I know. You
0: know you're looking at stuff. I see
1: stuff on my home set that I didn't see in the theater.
0: So you're you know? you're I've
1: definitely and stuff, but I didn't even, I couldn't see it when I saw the movie theater. I can see it on my home screen, so, you know, there's a lot to be said for these new Blu-rays.
0: So you're definitely a fan of the 4K side of things, that's great to hear.
1: And I could point out this thing, you know, remember, Fern Belly was one of the last handmade films, so the backgrounds are paintings.
0: I know, and right? they are they're beautiful.
1: Really they're, they're literally paintings, and these cells are painted cells. They're little, And then there's film on film, so you're talking about a resolution-independent medium that is, like, and when you take that and you do a great high-res, high-dynamic range scan like they did at Shark Factory, you're looking at the best way you ever been seen. You've never seen right. an animated film look this good. Digital movies, you know, they don't make them, you know, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> you know what
0: i'm talking about i know uh, speaking of that you know you said they did an hdr pass a high dynamic range pass with this 4k scan would you be up for it i mean it's up to Shout factory but would you be up for it if they would do a 4k uhd blu-ray of this not just a blu-ray i know i'd buy it yeah, absolutely absolutely that's great I to i absolutely want to do that you know it's um like i say it's just you know ralph egelson
1: was our director and uh he's genius and that's one thing everybody comments about is how gorgeous Spring belly looks you know the, it the does you immerse yourself in that world and you know the other thing about that it's so cool is that that's the real world everything in there we went to Australia those are every plant every animal is real it's you know I mean we, just, we stylized it but that was part of the message of Fernbelly was that our own world is so beautiful it's like a fantasy and why don't we save this world and so to see it again in its full glory you know It's really a
0: lot of fun. That's so true, especially with this new 4K scan. You're right. You see so much detail that probably you haven't seen since the theatrical versions from most People. I know that to be the truth. So it's time for my final few questions here. First of all, what do you think of the current state of animation today being mostly all CG? Well,
1: look, I think there's good movies being made, of course. I think everything is looking relatively slick visually, but they're starting to look kind of similar. You're starting to get a real formulaic... I think I think part of that is a little bit of the political correct climate, where people don't want to go widely into different things. We're starting to get, you know, I think I'm sorry to see experimentation uh, kind of take a backseat. Things get more and more lush and expensive looking, but I'm not sure the stories are getting better. Right. And I'm really sorry to see I'm sorry to see hand drawn animation, you know, becoming a rarity. You know, because the hand drawing you see. in Fern Gully, you know, of course, the great thing about hand-drawn animation was it didn't have to stick to any kind of physical, dimensional reality. It was just whatever the artist drew and made you believe, you know, worked. And that's why you watch it, and you, and you, you sort of are hypnotized by it, because in a way, you know it can't really be real, and yet... You're buying into it. You're buying the character. So hand-drawn will always be something that will be right, kind of special to me, and I and I really hope that we... I know some people like Brad have been trying to do hand-drawn movies. Right. And it's tough, you know, because producers have this thing in their heads now that, you know, oh, no, the audience just wants a CCG. I don't really think that's true.
0: I think you're right in that hand-drawn animation is just something that cannot be replaced. There is, there's so much just so much more detail to it. And you're right, I think some of the uh, CG animated movies are suffering in in their story and not really putting as much heart, perhaps, into it. Now it's more of a world where we live in with little hand-drawn, aside from anime, occasionally. But most of it is CG these days. And going back full circle here... Did your short technological threat back in 1988 eerily come true? And or was it meant to say that 3D was about to be a threat to 2D, essentially, and a game changer that got us here, essentially?
1: Well, you're right about the fact that it was prophetic. It made that statement that CG is going to be threatening hand-drawing. And in the end of that movie, as you can see, the hand-drawing guy, he wins. But I guess you know we'll see how long that lasts. I... I think the hand-drawn guy will always win the aesthetic battle. I think great hand-drawing is, you know, it's just, uh, especially when you watch pencil tests, you know, it's just, they're so magical to watch. Um, I don't know. Uh, let's just hope that, uh, let's just hope that the financial and, and the commercial world keeps supporting it.
0: I would hope so because I, I as a kid uh, got to visit Disney World a few times and uh, got to go through some of the areas they had where you could watch the animators doing drawings and such and that inspired me to want to be an animator but I was never inclined to it. I went other routes but you're right there's just so much to that that I love about that era of animation. It's just it's irreplaceable. I, I, I wish it would make a comeback as you said. Thank you, Bill, for your time here and for bringing us really such a memorable animated film that really has lived up to the test of time and looks phenomenal now, honestly, on Blu-ray. And I hope maybe someday on four K UHD Blu-rays as well. So we can only hope on that one. <laughs> well, let's hope, yeah. Let's. Uh, I think I think it is. I think we I
1: think we will get one. So let's let's look for it. Anyway, great talking to you. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoy the movie.
0: Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that concluded the full interview there with Bill Croyer. I want to take the time to first and foremost thank the folks at Shout Factory for giving me the opportunity to conduct that interview, as well as Bill Croyer for taking the time to do the interview. And thank James Seegers for doing the editing and production of this recording. Uh, I thank you for your help, James, and uh, I want to tell folks that we hopefully will have more of these type of interviews coming up in the near future, and the podcast could be coming back in a new way, but until then, stay tuned, and I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen, and remember, support Physical Media.